Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Women in Technology and Innovation, we shine a spotlight on the remarkable female entrepreneurs, business leaders, and technologists who are not only changing the way we live and work, but are paving new paths for female entrepreneurs and gender equality. I'm your host, Samantha Wallravens. Today's episode features Jessica Davidoff, CEO of Easton Ray. We will be discussing Jessica's successes and challenges from her experience as a serial entrepreneur. She also discusses how she got the nickname, The Wolf. Let's start by talking about your company, admittedly, your first startup, which you launched yeah. in 2013. Mm-hmm. How did the company come into existence? So I actually had another company before that, but it wasn't in the tech space. Um, I graduated from Princeton in 2004, and my first job after I graduated was as a director of an SAT prep company. And it happened to be the year that the SAT was changing from the 1600 scale to the 2400 scale. And I had this hypothesis that we should write ACT prep curriculum. So I went to the owner of the company and said, I really wanted to write this curriculum. He told me I was crazy and that no one in New York would ever take the ACT. And for whatever reason, I quit on the spot and said, you know, I'm going to write this curriculum. I'm going to start this business. And I, you know, my parents were just like out of their minds. They thought I was nuts. They actually thought I was nuts at first for taking a job at this SAT prep company and like turning down offers from some of the top consulting firms. And then when I told them I quit and that I was going to get a bartending job, they were just like, we don't know what happened. So I did that. I spent about six months bartending at night, writing the curriculum during the day. And I launched my business and didn't know anything about search engine optimization at the time. But because we were talking a lot about ACT prep, we just were naturally kind of flooded with requests because so many kids wanted to take the ACT at the time. And so we really grew totally organically. We never spent any money on marketing. And with that company, we ended up expanding to London. I opened an office there and I moved there for two years. We opened an office in Buenos Aires. And over the years, we were always working at the super high end of the market because what we were offering was very personalized one-on-one test prep and admissions counseling. And so I had this idea that I wanted to offer our curriculum and our services to students at all budgets in all locations. And I started to really dive into the world of education technology and got really excited about the power of technology and education. And so that's really where the idea hatched. And I ended up selling the Edge's curriculum to a educational publisher and then kind of dove in headfirst with admittedly hiring a lead developer and really building out our matching algorithm with a personality psychologist and, you know, taking some of the curriculum I had worked on over all of those years and kind of digitizing it. So they say that entrepreneurs don't start businesses, they solve problems. What was the problem you were trying to solve with Admittedly? So with that, it was really trying to help students find the right college for them. I felt, I always felt that the kind of like US News and World Report rankings and all of those kind of ranking lists weren't really a good source for students because it didn't matter if a school was ranked number 20 on the list, if it wasn't the right fit for you, you know, a school ranked 75 might be the best school for you. And so we really wanted to create something that was super personalized, which we had done with the edge, but it was super expensive because it was so, um, you know, one-on-one and personalized. And so we wanted to really solve that problem for students um, all over the world and at all budgets. And so that was really 
what we were helping solve. Um, and then as it expanded and we started to incorporate these checklists and this digital curriculum into what we were doing, we really started to solve pro the problem that a lot of students throughout the United States don't really have access to guidance counselors because at the time the ratio of high school students to guidance counselors was like 476 to one, which was crazy. So. Um, we really wanted to create an atmosphere where students could get their questions answered and know what they should be doing um, during their college prep journey. So you exited in what year did you exit? So we actually sold it admittedly to a company called NRCCUA in 2016, in December of 2016. And I ended up working there for two years. And then that combined entity, the admittedly with um, their platform, which was an enterprise software for colleges and universities, we ended up selling that joint entity to ACT in 2018. So you, as a serial entrepreneur, you've run more than one business. At the same time, you're running admittedly and growing the company. You're also co-founding Golf Match. So how does that work? Well, you know what was so funny? Golf Match was, was a passion project. It was very much a situation where it was solving a problem. So I met this guy on the train who was going out to Long Island to play golf. We started chatting. He's a scratch golfer, very good was complaining that he could never find other golfers to play with who were at his level. I am on the other end of the spectrum, not a good golfer at all, but I love it and I'm very enthusiastic and wanted to find other people to play with aside from my dad and my brother. And there was no place to find other golfers. So we said, you know, let's build this uh, solution to our problem together. And so he had a full-time job. I was really diving in with admittedly, and we were kind of just working on this on the side. And so I sort of, you know, because I usually have my hands in a lot of cookie jars at once. I usually try to explain it to people like, you know, a lot of people go home and will watch two hours of Bravo or a lot of some people, you know, might go and be part of a band and, you know, they're spending hours practicing or jamming or doing gigs. It's like, I'll spend my time after work, like working on something else because I don't necessarily look at it as quote unquote work. It's really fun to kind of problem solve. And that's really, you know, what I, I get motivated by. So we were working on that, you know, after work, we would meet at the Ace Hotel lobby. And then on the weekends, we would meet up as well to work on it and never thought it was going to really take off. But we grew it to about 25,000 users and ended up raising money. He, my co-founder, quit his job. I kind of took a backseat and wasn't in an operating role because I was at that point like full on with admittedly. But then Topgolf found out about it. They got really excited. They acquired it and he's still working at Topgolf now and, and loves the company, which is great. Tell us about what makes a company investable because a lot of people have great ideas. A lot of people actually have businesses that they run, but they're not necessarily raising venture capital and trying to grow the business with the purpose of an exit. What, what makes a business investment worthy? Well, I think you have to think about what the goal of a venture capitalist is. And their goal is obviously to make a return on their investment for their LPs. And so, I think, and you know, and obviously every fund has their own theses and um, might have their own kind of directives in terms of causes and problems that they want to support. But at the end of the day, their goal and their kind of reason for being is to provide a return. So I think when they look at investing at an early stage, when a company is at their seed stage, they have to say, okay, well, if we invest now and we're not going to do tons of huge checks following on, our, you know, $500,000 investment or $200,000 investment is going to get diluted 
in series A and series B and series C. So we have to believe that there is a possibility that this company can have a hundred million billion dollar valuation at some point so that we can make a good return on their investment. And I think the reason why they're going for such high valuations, because if you ask yourself, you're like, wait, but like if you invested at a five million dollar valuation and we exit for 40, wouldn't that be okay? And of course that is okay. And that happens all the time. But I think when a VC is creating their portfolio, what they want is they know that every one of those companies in that portfolio needs to have the potential for a hundred million dollar, billion dollar exit because such a large percentage of those companies are going to go to zero and they're going to fail. And then another portion are going to just kind of break even and get their money back. And then another portion will do somewhat okay. And then they, there has to be at least a couple in that fund that go to the billion dollar so that overall that portfolio returns a good multiple to their investors. So I think it's really about showing your investors and making a case that the business really does have that potential to get to that valuation and to get there quickly with like very, very fast growth. So for example, my first company, The Edge, wouldn't be venture backable because it was one-on-one. -on -one. We had huge revenues. We were profitable within the first year and it was a very great lifestyle business for me. But not venture backable because for every new student we bring on, I need to find a tutor and the pool of tutors who can do the level of, of prep that we were doing was very small. So it wasn't this kind of uh, opportunity where we could scale you know, exponentially fast. So that wasn't gonna be exciting to a VC. Whereas admittedly, you know, once we put the app out and we started growing, we grew to about 250,000 students within our first two years. And then after we got acquired and I was working on it for those two years when I actually had a very nice budget, I ended up growing the user base to about 6 million kids in two years. So that was just like super fast growth that didn't cost a lot of money to do. So I think that that's kind of really what people are looking for when they're looking to invest from an actual fund. Great. So tell us about your experience in securing and pitching to venture capital firms. What were the challenges you faced? How did you succeed? You know, what's really interesting is I think that coming back to what you were saying before about really good entrepreneurs don't create companies, they solve problems. And good investors are people who can look at the solution that you created and really understand why it's a great solution for the problem. And so I think, you know, if you think about entrepreneurs, the way that you're going to start a company is usually by solving a problem that you have personally. So female founders are usually going to solve problems that they themselves as a woman or as a mother have. And so when you're pitching a male VC, the kind of issue, in my opinion, initially for a lot of, of companies is that the male VC doesn't necessarily understand the problem because it's not a problem for him. Because what this incredible female founded company did was solve a problem that he knows nothing about. And so a lot of times, like my friends who have female founded companies that are dealing with female problems, the guy, the, like the investors will say like, well, let me ask, my, I'm going to ask my wife about this, you know? And I think that then all of a sudden it's like, well, they don't really latch onto it. I, you know, with admittedly, we didn't have the female problem because we were creating a solution for high school students, but we had 
so much success with pitching investors who had just gone through the college prep process. I would say 90% of the people who wrote checks like super, super fast were people who literally had just gotten their high school student into college and they were like, oh my God, that was painful. And they knew that these were obviously people running investment funds. They actually were coming from a place of very significant privilege because their kids were going to great schools. They had resources to help them outside of school and it was still painful for them. So when they, when I was presenting, well, that, this is a problem. They're like, I know all about the problem. And then I'm like, this is the solution. They're like, yep, we get it. Like, here's a check. And when I was pitching kind of younger VCs or people who didn't have kids or people who had young kids, they were like, oh, okay, but like, is it really that hard? And so I think when it comes down to it, it really is a problem with there aren't that many female VCs. And so when you're looking at the, the female founder, like the funding problem, it, it kind of starts with where is the money coming from? And do those people who are controlling the money actually understand the breadth of the problems that female founders are trying to solve? So let's talk about your current work. You started Easton Ray, formerly called Sprezzatura. Am I saying yeah. that? Yeah. You started it in 2017. Explain to me, to us, what Easton Ray does. So I started it actually after we got acquired while I was working full time with NRCCUA. And they had acquired two companies at the same time as admittedly. And we're prioritizing the implementation and the integration of the other company first. And they said to me, you know, look, things are going to be a little boring for you for the first four to six months because there's not much for you to do while we're working on this other implementation, but we don't want you to think that we bought your company to just like shut it down. And I'm like, that's fine. I said, but I don't really do well with being bored. So do you mind if I set up a consulting company so that I can take on projects to keep myself busy? And they said, no problem. That would be great as long as you're not doing it in education. So I said, okay, no problem. So I set up Sprezzatura at the time and started working with everything outside of education but all of my education companies were direct to student or direct to consumer and so i always wanted to focus on kind of consumer facing brands and what we started doing was really helping companies kind of create these growth roadmaps for themselves and so right now we have kind of two sides of the business one side is what we call launch concierge and that's really when we work with a creative founder who doesn't necessarily have a great business background but might have an incredible following and a really big passion for putting some sort of product out into the world but needs someone who knows how to launch a business and so we literally will work on every aspect of it from idea to launch and then post-launch we offer a growth advisory uh, service where we'll either stay on board as a fractional chief business officer or CEO, or we'll take a smaller role as more of like a growth strategist. And we'll create the company's holistic growth roadmap, which really incorporates finance operations and then kind of breaks down the company's operating plan by department so that everybody knows what their marching orders are to hit the kind of bigger long-term goals. And so we have that and, and we have those two services for companies that are launching. But then, you know, a lot of companies found out about what we were offering and they wanted to work with us on the growth road mapping, even though they didn't go through our launch concierge. So we started to take on clients like State Bags and uh, a sustainable swimwear company called Tropic of the Sea. Worked with Violet Gray, which is a multi-brand beauty retailing site. And so started working with existing brands as well as these kind of nascent brands that were really in idea phase. 
And tell us the difference between launching your own company versus working with an outside founder. Oh my God, so different. <laughs> so going through the kind of launch process with someone else, it's, it's, it's hard because I think when you launch a brand correctly, there is a very strong brand personality and brand identity and a mission and a why. And so, you know, I think when I launch my own companies, like there's always a very, very strong personality and, and brand identity. And so when you're doing it with someone else and they're the founder and it's their story, you you almost have these ideas of like, well, this is what the brand identity should be. But then it's like they go rogue and they're like, no, we want it to be this. And we're like, no, 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 no. Like it should be that. But you can't really say, you know, you have to change it because they ultimately have final say. So I think it's really hard because you don't really have any control. Um, and then I would say that the other thing is it's much slower. Like when I, I was working on a celebrity led tequila brand and it was it, it took like over two and a half years. Whereas and it was just because everything was so slow. It's like, oh, well, I need to ask like seven of my advisors and then it's like they'll pick something and they're like, no, 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 no. Like I want to go with this other direction. And Whereas like with me, I'm very decisive and it's like, I don't really usually ask advisors. I'm like, okay, like, let's do this one. Like we're, I'm launching a, a food brand in August and I just saw the branding for the first time last night and they showed me three directions and I'm like, direction number one, let's go. And it was, he was like, you're the, the fastest, you know, client I've, we've ever worked with. And it's great because then I'm like, okay, let's meet with the web design team on Monday, give them the branding and like, let's start the website. Whereas you know, with a client, it might take four months, like to do what we just did in five days. And in my experience, and you would know better since you are a founder, um, founders are very persistent and driven and often stubborn. So trying to <laughs> change their mind or convince them is, is probably really difficult. Yeah, it's super difficult. And I think, you know, on the other side, when I kind of go into an existing brand and sort of orchestrate these turnarounds um, or pivots, that I think is, is even harder because every founder, you know, looks at their company as being like just like stellar. But that it's like kind of similar when you're selling a home. It's like you have your home that you lived in for 20 years and it's like the perfect home and everything is like so sentimental and, and you picked out that exact you know, fabric for your curtains and the colors of the walls and someone else walks in there like, that's really dated. That doesn't make sense. Why would you put this there? I'm going to change all of these things. And you can be so objective because there's not that emotional attachment. So when I do these turnarounds, like I'll come in and I'll shoot it very straight to them. Like this has to go. You hired five people who we don't need anymore. They're all amazing people. I love them. They're super nice. But like, we don't need those people on the team right now. Like one of my companies that I was turning around had like this incredible events marketer. I'm like, you haven't launched an event in six months, like, but you're paying her two hundred thousand dollars a year. Like, what are we doing? You know, so things like that. But but she but they're like, oh, but we love her. She's so great and she's like so amazing. I'm like, yeah, she's amazing, but she should be working on a company that does like tons of events. Um, so so yeah, so it's like really hard to kind of have these conversations with founders because they are so emotionally attached to their companies and they sort of like can't hear things objectively without it feeling like a dagger to their soul. So your LinkedIn says you're a turnaround CEO, one of your many roles, a turnaround CEO. Does that mean you actually come in and you take over the CEO role for these companies you advise? Yeah, so I've done that four times now. 
for for clients. So there was one company that was in the education space called Genius. Another that was uh, State Bags. I, I actually so they were a client, and then I was we were creating these growth roadmaps and doing all of the planning, and then they were like, we actually just need someone to like execute these plans. We can't do it. So they brought me in. I was there for 18 months. Um, I was at Violet Gray as chief business officer, basically turning things around, repositioning, and I rehired their entire executive team um, ahead of their recent acquisition by Farfetch. So basically like kind of setting them up for the acquisition and getting all the right people in place, creating the operating plan and like getting it into a place where it could be an interesting acquisition, which thankfully went through. So yeah, so that's, it's much harder. But for my personality, I think when, like I love launching my own businesses, that's my absolute favorite because you have control, you get to put a lot of your personality into it. But I'm not going to, for for coming back again to what you're saying, like I wouldn't just launch a business for the sake of launching a business unless I have an idea that's really solving a problem that I truly believe doesn't have a viable solution in the world already. Like I wouldn't want to just like, oh, I want to launch a beauty brand because, you know, I feel like launching a beauty brand. Like if there was a product where it's like there's nothing on the market that does X then I, I wouldn't, then I would launch it, but I wouldn't just like want to create a, a brand for the sake of creating a brand. So during those years where I didn't necessarily have that inspiration to solve a problem, where I didn't really have idea of solutions yet, um, the turnaround role for me is very attractive. I've always been someone drawn to solving problems. I've loved puzzles my whole life. I love like brain teasers, every, you know, SATs. Like I was like, always kind of like obsessed with kind of standardized tests, things like that. So for me, when I see that, I'm like, okay, like here's the mess, like let's figure out like how we can get things like into the puzzle. And that was is always very fun. Tell us about the origin of your nickname, The Wolf. Yeah, so The Wolf, so there's a movie, Pulp Fiction. I don't know like if it's like a cult favorite for, for college students now, but it is like a cult favorite movie. And there's a character in it played by Harvey Keitel named The Wolf. And he's like this fixer guy. He comes in, you know, this, I don't want to give away the movie for people who haven't seen it, but they have a huge problem, like a huge, huge problem. And they call him and the wolf comes and he walks in with a tuxedo on and he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like giving them all the directions. And he's like, I talk fast, but I'm going to help you with your problem. And he's just a straight shooter, doesn't want to have pleasantries. He just gets right to the point. He's not really you know, looking to make friends, he's just there to solve your problem. And he'll do it and he'll figure it out away and he'll do it very elegantly and gracefully. But he's like, not there to like make friends. So that's my nickname. I'm very like direct. I solve problems. But I also don't necessarily participate in, you know, polite society where it's like, oh, yeah, your business is so amazing. I'm obsessed. Oh, everything's perfect. It's like, I'm a very straight shooter, very direct. What else about your personality has helped you as a founder? I think the number one personality trait is probably confidence. As a founder, you're kind of treading in waters where you've never been before. And I think a lot of people are like, well, I don't know. And there's like that whole idea of imposter syndrome. And you just got to say, like, I'm going to figure it out. I might not necessarily, 
I've never done this before and nobody's ever done this before, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm smart enough. I have enough resources. I can hire a great team and motivate them and whatever problem happens, because there's always going to be problems as an entrepreneur, we've got this, we're going to figure it out. And I think that that confidence is so necessary for yourself. And then I would say that a huge appetite for risk. This is definitely not a career for someone who just wants to kind of like row the boat on like a crystal clear lake and just kind of float along and like be super content and know exactly what they're doing every day and like know that they're good at it. It's like much more analogous to surfing on a break that's like has waves that are way too big for you, but you're just like, I'm already out here. I gotta like paddle. You know, you're gonna be pummeled and feel like you're not going to be able to come up for air some days and then you're going to have to get over the break and then finally like you're catching your breath and then like you're paddling into a wave and you get wiped out and so I think it's really something where you have to have a big appetite for risk that like you could have a really bad wipeout and get hurt but also someone who loves the adrenaline of like the highs the lows that that feeds off of that and it kind of gives you that energy. Can you say one big mistake that you've made that you've learned from? So I think in terms of mistakes, I would say early on, I didn't really listen to my gut a lot and not realizing kind of have to own all of the mistakes, you know, when something doesn't work out kind of saying like, well, he said so. And it's like, at the end of the day, like you're the founder, like you have to just own it. And I think I learned that the hard way by spending money on initiatives that like didn't make sense and didn't work out, even though I knew deep down that we shouldn't be doing certain things. So who have been your biggest cheerleaders along the way? I mean, I would definitely say my dad and my mom. I mean, they are just like so positive. Even though they thought I was crazy when I quit my first job, told them I was going to be a bartender with an Ivy League degree. And then I would say I made this great group of girlfriends from college after we graduated. I didn't really know them in school, but there was one girl from my year who was also working in tech and we kind of connected at some event. And I was like, oh, like I actively want to be friends with her. She gets it. Like she's in tech. We should be friends. So we became friends and she had like a group of girlfriends from college already. And I'm like, I'm just going to join that group and, and kind of insert myself, even though they're all like best friends from college. But I'm like, that's kind of like a really cool group. I like them. I'm going to be the next member. And now they're my best friends. I mean, we're all celebrating our 40th birthdays this year. Like it's like the five of us and they're all super successful, but in very different ways. For me, my personal definition of success is freedom. I found companies, the reason why I'm an entrepreneur, which is a job that most people would never want to do because it's so hard. But my reason for doing it is obviously I love problem solving, but if I can say that like I spent every day doing exactly what I want to do, getting to, you know, do things, that excite me like that to me is success so it doesn't matter like how much money i end up selling for i might even decide to like shut a business down but if on a daily basis i can just say like yeah i'm waking up and you know what today's 60 degrees in new york in february like i'm gonna take the day off and i'm gonna go to the zoo with my son randomly like having that freedom to just like decide for yourself what you want to do with whom how you're gonna do it how you're going to grow, you know, what path the company is going to take. That to me is like my definition of success. So all my companies, in my opinion, have been like super successful because I've always had that freedom. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at Nasdaq Center podcast. The Lehigh at Nasdaq Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the Nasdaq Entrepreneurial Center. 
Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram. We are at Lehigh NASDAQ Center. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. Next week, I have the privilege of speaking with young alum, Samantha Orlin, Senior Program Manager at Narvar. She will discuss her successes, challenges, the importance of mentorship, and what she wished she knew before starting her first full-time engineering job.